You are listening to the September 2023 edition of The Postal Record, the magazine of the National Association of Letter Carriers. I'm NALC President Brian Renfro, and this is my president's message from the September 2023 Postal Record entitled, Enough is Enough. Since the inception of the Postal Service nearly 250 years ago, Letter carriers in uniform have delivered to all communities in our vast nation, including the meanest streets and the most dangerous neighborhoods in the country. Incidents of crime against these respected and revered public servants were almost unheard of. No one dared to mess with the letter carrier. Unfortunately, this is no longer the case. During the COVID-19 pandemic, letter carriers never stopped working keeping our nation connected during dangerous and uncertain times and delivering household items so tens of millions of Americans could shelter safely at home. As customers received more packages and stimulus checks in the mail, violent criminals started targeting our members, a disturbing trend that has continued and grown. Despite letter carriers being named the most trusted federal employees in a variety of public polls for many years running, We continue to see an increase in violent assaults and crimes against our members. Every day, our members are being targeted in neighborhoods nationwide. Violence, assault, robbery, shootings, and even murder have become part of the job in many locations. Nearly every day, I hear about another horrific assault against one of our members. Every time, I am heartbroken for our brothers and sisters who are victims and for their loved ones. But even more than that, I am angry. I'm furious that our members continue to be targeted and harmed with no end in sight. I've said many times that there is no single solution to this disturbing problem, but more can be and must be done, and it must be done immediately. Every employer has a duty and obligation to protect its employees on the job. The Postal Inspection Service is not protecting us, and the U.S. Department of Justice is not doing its job prosecuting these crimes. Word is clearly out among criminals on the streets, leaving letter carriers unfairly forced to defend themselves. These conditions that once seemed unimaginable are the norm now. It is sickening and it is wrong. I'm writing this column days after corporate communications from Postal Service headquarters sent a tone-deaf message to carriers on our mobile delivery devices that read, quote, you are responsible for your own safety. No, we are not responsible for our own safety from violent robberies and attacks. Protecting postal employees is the responsibility of the Postal Inspection Service. The Inspection Service's website identifies protecting USPS employees as what we do. Further, it states, quote, The safety and well-being of Postal Service employees is a top priority for the Postal Inspection Service. Postal inspectors and postal police officers work diligently to investigate and prevent instances of violent crime against our employees. And yet, current methods of prevention clearly are not working. The situation is worsening. There are thousands of postal inspectors and postal police officers around the country who are dedicated public servants and, like letter carriers, work hard every day. I do not write this column to criticize them or the work they do. They know, as does the leadership at USPS headquarters, that more must be done. Times have drastically changed, and methods for protecting our members while we do our job must reflect the current circumstances. When an assault happens, the inspection service universally does a good job investigating these crimes, which is a crucial element for the prosecution and conviction 
of the reprehensible criminals who attack letter carriers. Unfortunately, very little is being done to prevent these attacks, and we continue to see alarmingly low prosecution rates for these crimes. When these crimes are not prosecuted, it sends a message to criminals that they can get away with robbing a letter carrier. What were once seasonal crimes of opportunities for packages and goods have escalated into elaborate targeted crime rings with increasing violence. All the while, these heinous crimes continue undeterred. This absence of deterrence is extremely dangerous, and it is unacceptable. We continue to publicly call on all federal prosecutors to prioritize crimes committed against letter carriers, and we will keep doing so until every single one of these cases is heard. U.S. District Attorneys cannot let these criminals get by and continue to put us in danger. I applaud USPS for investing to increase prosecutions. We now need the Department of Justice to step up and prioritize these crimes. Together, we need to get the message out that any assault on a letter carrier is intolerable and that assailants will be punished to the fullest extent of the law. Last month, I joined Branch 11 at a rally in Chicago where the slogan was, Enough is Enough. The event took place one week after a brother from Branch 11 was shot on his route. The message at the rally was loud and clear. We deserve respect and protection, and we demand it now. Despite the circumstances surrounding the event, I was heartened to see so many members of Branch 11, local leaders, media, and other community members come out in support of letter carriers. Events like this make a difference and bring awareness to this growing problem. I encourage all NALC branches, especially in areas that are experiencing an uptick in crime, to mobilize and plan similar events. When we all come out with a unified message, we are heard. We will not stand by and wait. We demand respect and protection. We cannot allow the Postal Inspection Service and the Department of Justice to continue to fail our members. We demand that they fulfill their responsibilities and stop these crimes. Enough is enough. News from Washington. Congress set to return following August recess. Following an August recess, Congress is set to return after Labor Day, with the Senate scheduled to return on September 5th, followed by the House's return on September 12th. Members of both chambers left Washington, D.C. with much work remaining to be done, especially on the federal budget, ensuring busy legislative sessions when lawmakers return this month. House approved one spending bill, the Military Construction Veterans Affairs Bill, ahead of the recess. The Senate advanced all 12 funding bills out of committee, but none received a full Senate vote before the congressional break. Congress must pass all 12 appropriations bills to fund the government and avoid a shutdown on September 30th, though a stopgap spending bill is a possibility as a short-term solution to keep the government running. Reaching a consensus will likely be difficult, however, given partisan divisions and holdouts, particularly from members of the House Freedom Caucus. Spending gaps included in the debt limit deal that passed earlier this year aimed to make the budget process smoother in a divided Congress, but partisanship and contentious issues have complicated the process. Federal Aviation Administration, FAA reauthorization, also will be a top priority when lawmakers return. The current FAA bill is set to expire on September 30th. After several controversial amendments that failed, the House passed an FAA bill at the end of July. Now it is the Senate's turn to act on the FAA reauthorization, where revisions to pilot training, added long-haul flights at Reagan National Airport, and increased minimum wage for airport workers are expected to be debated. 
September is set to be a busy month in Washington, especially with a potential government shutdown looming. While a shutdown would not affect the work of letter carriers, it could stop the work of hundreds of thousands of other federal employees. House resolutions protecting postal services gained support. Below is updated information on the three service-related resolutions that have been reintroduced in the 118th Congress. Door Delivery Resolution, House Resolution 376. Representatives David Joyce, Republican, Ohio, and Sanford Bishop, Democrat, Georgia, reintroduced this resolution, which calls on Congress to take all appropriate measures to ensure the continuation of door delivery for all business and residential customers currently receiving them. Getting mail, including including bills, paychecks, medications, ballots, and packages, at the door is preferred by the public, and continuing this essential service is critical to the economic success of the Postal Service. At press time, the resolution had 25 co-sponsors, 16 Democratic and 9 Republican. Service Standards Resolution, House Resolution 277. House Resolution 277 was reintroduced by Representatives Don Bacon, Republican Nebraska, and Marcy Kaptor, Democrat, Ohio. It expresses the sense of Congress that the Postal Service should take all appropriate measures to restore the service standards that were in effect as of July 1, 2012. It has 35 co-sponsors, 29 Democratic and 6 Republican so far. Anti-Privatization Resolution, House Resolution 439. Representatives Stephen Lynch, Democrat, Massachusetts, Jamie Raskin, Democrat, Maryland, Jerry Connolly, Democrat, Virginia, and Kwesi Mfume, Democrat, Maryland, reintroduced a resolution to protect the Postal Service from privatization. The resolution calls on Congress to ensure that USPS remains an independent establishment of the federal government and is not subject to privatization. This resolution was first introduced in 2018 following a report from President Trump that called for privatizing the Postal Service. Fortunately, this idea was dead on arrival in Congress. Update on the Social Security Fairness Act. The Social Security Fairness Act, House Resolution 82-Senate 597, has once again received broad bipartisan support in the House, with 289 co-sponsors in the House. Under House rules, when a bill reaches 290 co-sponsors, it can go to the House floor for a vote after 30 days if the Committee of Jurisdiction does not act. The House Committee on Ways and Means is the Committee of Jurisdiction for House Resolution 82. The committee is led by Chairman Jason Smith, Republican Missouri. If the bill reaches 290 co-sponsors, it is unlikely that House leaders will bypass the committee process and call for a floor vote. The Social Security Fairness Act would repeal the Windfall Elimination Provision, or WEP, and the Government Pension Offset, GPO, which are parts of Social Security law that unfairly reduce or sometimes eliminate Social Security benefits of millions of federal annuitants, including letter carriers. On September 13th, NALC will participate in a rally hosted by the National Repeal WEP GPO Task Force. The rally will take place at 3 p.m. on Capitol Grounds in Washington, D.C. For more information about the rally, please visit the Government Affairs section of NALC.org. Visit NALC.org action to check whether your representative is a co-sponsor of the bill, and if not, ask them to support H.R. 82. 
Letter Carriers, the face of USPS and its advertising. When you see a Postal Service advertisement on television or the internet, you might think that the people portraying letter carriers and other postal employees delivering the mail with a smile are just professional actors, paid to play a part. But you're seeing real postal employees, just like you, doing their jobs, and they all got their parts by answering a USPS casting call. The latest casting call was sent out in August in the Postal Service's Link newsletter and other outlets, and is for employees to appear in ads that will run on TV and online in December for the holiday season. The audition process is open to all employees, and no prior experience is required. The best way for the Postal Service to tell its story of transformation and service to the nation is through our employees, who make all of what this organization does possible, USPS brand shipping director Latonia Simmons said. Maybe one of those faces and voices is yours. Though the holiday casting call ends on September 4th, USPS shoots many ads and accepts cast applications for them year-round, so your chance could be next. The Postal Record talked to a few letter carriers who have appeared in USPS ads about the experience. Caitlin Caputo got her moment in the sun after years of trying, fulfilling a childhood dream. Since I was a kid, she said, I wanted to be a model, but didn't think I had a shot. Caputo, a member of Buffalo Western New York Branch 3, applied four years ago to act in a USPS commercial after seeing a notice from USPS that her branch president had posted on Facebook. She wasn't chosen. She tried again a few years later. Finally, after applying a third time last December, her number came up. Following the instructions in the Postal Service's call for talent, Caputo emailed a headshot and a video to USPS. In the video, as instructed, she gave her name, hometown, and her favorite part of working for USPS, and she made her best surprised face. When USPS picked her for a new ad, she was flown out to Los Angeles to shoot the commercial. USPS finally saw that she had what it takes, she said. I'm always smiling, Caputo said. Just a friendly person. I feel like I have the energy that attracts people. The experience was right out of the movies, she said, from being picked up by a driver at the airport holding up a sign with her name to getting fitted for a costume, a postal uniform, of course, before the shoot. They even had the real Hollywood chairs on the set, she said. On the day before shooting, Caputo was fitted for the uniform, and the next day at 6 a.m., she went to the set for hair and makeup before playing her role for the camera. She had no lines in the ad, so she didn't have to memorize any. She performed her small part in the ad, delivering mail to a jewelry store in several takes. You do it four or five different times until it's how they want it, she said. The ad she appeared in was a Spanish language spot that aired on YouTube TV. Like all postal employees who appear in USPS ads, Caputo was paid the standard Screen Actors Guild American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, SAG-AFTRA, wages for her work. Caputo said she loved the friendly USPS and video production staff that worked with her. It was hands down the best experience I've ever had, she said. I'd do it again in a heartbeat. The character also enjoyed making new friends among the other postal employees in the ad from across the country including Christine Maldonado of West Palm Beach, Florida, Branch 1690. USPS used footage of Maldonado driving an LLV in the ad with Caputo and in a few other ads. Maldonado had responded to a casting call last October. I submitted the video and then I forgot all about it, Maldonado said, until USPS called her in January and asked her to come to Los Angeles with only three days' notice. Everything happened so fast, she said. Once she arrived, Maldonado got a first-hand look at how ads are made. 
It was just like being on a movie set, she said, complete with trailers for her and her fellow actors to have their hair and makeup done and to change into their costumes. I wasn't used to that. It was a great experience to see what that was like. Maldonado drove an LLV on a closed street for the production, and though it was winter, the shot was depicting warmer weather, so she had to wear a light uniform. It was very, very cold, she said, and I couldn't wear a jacket. She was impressed by how much work it took just to shoot a short segment of the ad. They would retake and retake and retake, she said, until they got the perfect shot. My favorite part was being on the set and seeing the background of everything and all the equipment they use. Being able to be there and witness everything, she added. Maldonado auditioned when her cousin, Stephanie Maldonado, said she should try it. Stephanie, who is also a Branch 1690 member, had appeared in the 2021 holiday ad. I almost didn't audition, but at the last minute, I said, let me get out of my shell, Stephanie Maldonado said. After a second audition with USPS via Zoom, she got an email asking her to come to Los Angeles. By the way, you'll be in the lead role, they told her. Maldonado played a working mom who delivers the mail and then comes home to her children. The production staff put the novice actor at ease. I told them I was nervous, but they said, don't worry, we'll walk you through it. They were very patient. I tell everyone it was a good experience, she added. Do it, even if you're scared. Yvette Leggett thought she would be scared too. The Bergen County Merge, New Jersey branch 425 carrier, who recently retired after carrying the mail since 1985, has appeared in several video and print ads after USPS brought her to Los Angeles to shoot an ad in 2022. I thought I was going to be nervous, she said, but the production crew was so accommodating that she relaxed immediately. Everybody was so friendly, from the producers to the writers to the crew, Leggett said. Everyone knew my name. They even asked me for input. She showed them how and when carriers use scanners, for instance, to ensure that the ad was as authentic as possible. It was so exciting. I didn't know it was going to be a whole production, she added. From the chauffeur to the fancy hotel to the food, I felt like a movie star. USPS ended up using her in several video and print ads, including ads in magazines like Sports Illustrated and mailers that are sent directly to postal customers. Leggett liked the work so much that she asked the production staff about how to get into the acting business, and they gave her some resources to get more jobs. She has appeared in spots for other advertisers beyond USPS and has a role in an upcoming documentary film. She's looking at doing voice work as well. It's my retirement career, she said. At 23, James Urey is far from retirement, but he already is showing his distinctive face in postal ads. I tell people that my mustache is postal famous, said the San Bernardino, California branch 411 member who started carrying mail in 2020. Thanks to his appealing mustache, Yuri bagged a role in a postal ad in January 2022 at the last minute when two other carriers tested positive for COVID-19 and couldn't make it. To prepare in time to make it to his Marine Corps Reserve duties the following weekend, Yuri rushed out the door and drove a few hours to Los Angeles, arriving at the hotel in shabby clothes as the glamorous models paraded at an event in the ballroom. But he brushed it off and jumped right into the role. Yuri spent a few hours driving an LLV on a highway as a film crew sat behind him, taking a video. He also posed with a prototype of the Next Generation Delivery Vehicle, NGDV, though he didn't drive it because it had no engine yet. After a week of shooting the ad, Yuri went straight to Camp Pendleton for his reserve service. 
He and his mustache appeared soon after in the Postal Service's We Go Everywhere ad. It was a different experience working on a set with video producers, he said. As postal workers, we're used to just doing our jobs, but they were calling us talent. But in other ways, he said, working on a video production set was similar to his postal and military service. I'm used to the hurry-up-and-wait mentality. USPS accepts casting applications from postal employees throughout the year. Postal employees can apply online at mrm-usps.powerappsportals.com. Applicants must upload a headshot in a video. Instructions for what to say and do in the video are at the site. Hi, this is Michelle McQuality, Special Assistant to the President, and I'll be reading the USPS Timekeeping Virtual Time Card and ePayroll article found on page 8 of the September Postal Record. It's important to understand the information on your pay stub so you can ensure that you're getting paid properly. Whether you get a paper check or payment by direct deposit, you receive a pay stub every pay period that explains what you've earned as well as any deductions from your pay. This article will provide a brief explanation of the USPS timekeeping system, virtual time card, pay stubs, and the USPS ePayroll web application. Timekeeping. The Postal Service uses a unique timekeeping system that may be unfamiliar to some people when they begin a career with USPS. It is a variation of the military 24-hour clock, but records time in hundredths of an hour rather than in minutes. USPS Notice 30, Time Conversion Table, which can be found on the back of the PS Form 1260 non-EBR card, shows the equivalent hundredths when converting minutes and hours using this system. USPS pay stubs and e-payroll statements represent time entries using this timekeeping system as well. It is important to remember this unique timekeeping system when calculating your hours and payroll. Letter carriers are responsible for clocking in and out during their workday and recording the times and operations on which they work. The most common method used to record these times is the time collection application on the mobile delivery device, MDD. Another way letter carriers can document their work hours is by swiping their time card on a hyper-electronic badge reader, HEBR, commonly called the time clock at the facility. The third method by which letter carriers can record their time worked is by manually entering their time entries on a PS Form 1260. The PS Form 1260 should be used only in circumstances where the other methods for recording work hours are unavailable. For example, the MDD application or the HEBR might not be working properly, or the employee's ID badge or time card might be unavailable. In these situations, or in any instance where time cannot be recorded using the MDD or HEBR, letter carriers should request to complete a PS Form 1260 to ensure that they are paid properly for their work hours. Completed PS Forms 1260 are submitted to a supervisor or management official for approval and recording of the time worked. Management personnel should return a signed copy of the form. Letter carriers should contact a union representative if they receive instructions to use a PS Form 1260 for any reason other than those listed above. Virtual Time Card Regardless of the method used to record daily clock rings, letter carriers can view their accumulated work hours for the current pay period using the Virtual Time Card application by logging into lightblue.usps.gov. LightBlue is a web-based portal specifically designed for employees of USPS. LightBlue login requires your employee identification number, EIN, 
and your USPS password. LightBlue uses a multi-factor authentication, MFA, login process to increase security. To complete the login process, a verification code must be entered. You can obtain this multi-factor verification code via text message or email. Once you are logged in, click on the Apps tab at the top or scroll down to the Employee Apps section on the left and choose Virtual Time Card. Once you click on the Virtual Time Card, it will direct you to the landing page and you will click I Agree to be logged in. Virtual Time Card is designed to provide secure, near real-time access to your own time clock entries and your accrued work hours as recorded in the Time and Attendance Collection System, TAX. Through the Virtual Time Card, you will be able to view your clock rings and accumulated work hours by work hour category for the current pay period. This can be done every day and at any time using a personal computer or mobile device. ePayroll once the pay period has ended, employees will have access to their payroll information electronically via LightBlue ePayroll. This system allows employees to review their payroll accounts, allotments, and benefits. In the same Employee Apps section, select ePayroll, then follow the on-screen prompts. Your detailed ePayroll information is usually available online beginning on the Tuesday evening preceding your pay date. Your earnings statement on ePayroll will show you all of your paid hours, leave and retirement information, additional pay and deductions, and your net to bank amount. Keep in mind, the adjustments that appear during the current pay period may be corrections or modifications from previous pay periods. Currently, the ePayroll application allows employees to review and print earning statements dating back a full two years or a little less depending on how the pay periods fall. In addition to the ePayroll system, USPS will mail a printed version of your earnings statement each pay period. The printed pay stub summarizes the same information as ePayroll, but can be a little more difficult to understand. The 2023 Letter Carrier Resource Guide offers a complete explanation of how to read your printed pay stub. Whether you review the electronic version through ePayroll or on paper with a traditional pay stub, it is important for letter carriers to always keep track of their work hours and review their payroll records to make sure that their paycheck has been calculated correctly. If you discover a discrepancy in your payroll, you should speak to your shop steward or branch officer as soon as possible so they can investigate the situation. Letter Carriers and the Mail on Social Media Various news stories and interesting anecdotes that celebrate letter carriers and the mail have been appearing on social media. The following are some that have come to the union's attention. If you come across a story that you'd like us to consider featuring, send it to social at NALC.org. USPS honors civil rights giant. On July 21st, the Postal Service officially released the John Lewis stamp. A celebration was held at Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. In doing so, the Postal Service paid tribute to an important figure of the civil rights movement. Lewis was an original freedom rider, civil rights activists who rode integrated buses into segregated areas to challenge the law, and the youngest keynote speaker at the 1963 March on Washington. He also was a leader in the Selma to Montgomery March that helped lead to the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. John Lewis was a freedom fighter who helped redeem America's betrayal of its constitutional principles, Ron Strawman, a member of the USPS Board of Governors, said at the ceremony. History honors John Lewis, not just for what he did, but also for what his actions achieved. 
He forced our country to come to grips with its racism in ways that heretofore had not happened. We are a more democratic, compassionate, and a better nation because of what John Lewis and all who participated in the movement were able to achieve. The stamp was designed with a photograph of Lewis taken for Time magazine. Lewis has a serious, introspective expression and is sitting in front of an ombre silver background. Strawman said of the image, Look carefully at how the shadow falls on the right side of his face, illuminating the left side in a way that seems to take the viewer from darkness into the light, a fitting tribute to a man who sought to awaken the conscience of a country. Clothing brand releases USPS-themed products. Buffalo, New York-based clothing store Oxford Pennant released a line of Postal Service-themed items on July 6th. The company mostly sells custom wool felt pennants, flags, and banners, with the overall aesthetic being vintage. The Postal Service's licensing managers told USPS Link, Oxford Pennant's latest line is postal employee-focused and pays homage to our hardworking employees. The offerings are a nice way to commemorate, service, and evoke nostalgia. Some of the pennants depict mail, stamps, the Mr. Zip mascot, or a proud U.S. mail worker slogan. There also are customizable flags and banners offered as a way to honor various milestones or retirements for employees. The items are a beautiful way to showcase Postal Service pride. The Art of Newspaper Clippings While the majority of communication takes place online nowadays, some people still bask in the simplicity and tangibility of the past. Stephen Butkus is one such person. The 71-year-old resident of Sudbury, Massachusetts, keeps a photocopier, envelopes, and stamps at his disposal to send newspaper and magazine clippings to his family and friends. An article about three-story triplex homes to his brother, just like the one they grew up in, a cartoon about exercising to his former physical trainer. We try to inform and amuse, Butkus told the Wall Street Journal. Mailing newspaper clippings wasn't an uncommon practice until the transition to email. These types of mail fell off due to both the rise of technology and the decreasing consumption of print newspapers and magazines in the present day. Others are holding on to the tradition as well. Joe Kosica, a 39-year-old middle school math teacher in Virginia, still receives clippings of his hometown, Niagara Falls, New York, from his mother. Recently, he received an obituary for his former barber, which he found odd as he and his mother talk on the phone about once a week. But I found out through the mail. For a lot of people, sending newspaper clippings is a way to replace certain communications. It can make more mundane conversations fun or confrontational ones more lighthearted. According to Eric Lehman, an English professor at the University of Bridgeport, It began in the early 1800s with the start of newspaper mass production in urban areas. City dwellers would cut out stories and mail them to their rural relatives, who often kept them in scrapbooks. Lehman noted, it was like curating a Facebook page. Connecticut mailman surprises two-year-old postal service fan. Two-year-old Colby from Simsbury, Connecticut, has already met his hero, his local letter carrier. Seeing Hartford Branch 86's Mike Malazuski, or Mailman Mike, as the residents call him, is the highlight of the toddler's day. Colby not only adores the mailman, but also the entire USPS. We look for mail trucks in the wild, his mom, Jessica Bergman, told the Today Show. When Malazuski discovered that Colby would be turning too soon, he and his co-workers arranged for a parade of mail trucks to drive around the toddler's block, 
along with fire trucks, garbage trucks, a police car, and even a working dog that Colby got to meet. The postal employees also presented Colby with a gift, a little tyke's cozy coupe car that they had decorated to look like a mail truck, and a certificate dubbing him an honorary letter carrier. Bergman recorded the parade and shared the video on TikTok, where it quickly went viral. The comments gushed over Malazuski's kindness toward the boy. Imagine how much better this world would be if everybody treated each other this way, one commenter wrote, while another said, that little fellow will remember that for the rest of his life. Postcard reaches destination after 54 years. Jessica Means opened her mailbox on July 6th the same way she'd done countless times in the 17 years she lived in Portland, Maine. However, this time, among the bills and ads, was something unusual, a postcard from Paris, France, depicting the Arc de Triomphe. The postcard was addressed to names that Means didn't recognize, Mr. and Mrs. René A. Gagnon, but the address matched her own. It was dated March 15, 1969. The postcard had finally reached its destination after 54 years. The message read, Dear folks, by the time you get this, I will have long since been home, but it just seems proper to send this from the Tor Eiffel, where I am now. Don't have chance to see much, but having fun. Roy. Means contacted WGME-TV, a local CBS affiliate, and posted about the event on Facebook. It was found that René Gagnon, an immigrant from Quebec, and his wife, Rose Kosky, had lived in Portland until they both died more than 20 years before the postcard finally reached Means' home. The Roy in the postcard was Roy Salzman, husband to the Gagnon's daughter, Doris. Salzman, who attended the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and served in the Air Force, died in 2006. He and his wife, Doris, had traveled often for his work staying in Brazil, Mexico, and Belgium, and likely living in the latter at the time of the postcard. Based on the addition of newer stamps and the words, or current resident, Means thinks that the postcard had successfully been delivered to the Gagnons. I don't think it was ever lost. I think it was tucked away and refound, and someone decided to put a stamp on it and send it back to this address, she told the Washington Post. And I think that's really cool and curious. Means keeps the postcard tacked on her fridge. She calls it a little gift from the universe. With its bright blue background, yellowed arc, and a few streaks of dirt, it is a brief look into lives long since past. Proud to Serve Proud to Serve is a semi-regular compilation of heroic stories about letter carriers in their communities. If you know about a hero in your branch, contact us as soon as possible at 202 662 2489 or at postal record at nalc.org. We'll follow up with you to obtain news clippings, photos, or other information. Honoring Heroic Carriers Heroism, like the mail, comes in many packages. Think of police officers or firefighters. But for some citizens in need of assistance, their heroes come in the form of concerned letter carriers. Letter carriers are members of nearly every community in this nation and know when something is wrong. Spotting fires and injuries, they often are the first to respond. The following stories document their heroism. For them, delivering for America is all in a day's work. Seeing flames, vet springs into action. Willie Shannon pays attention, and it pays off. On a hot day in July 2022, 
the carrier pulled up to a fourplex to drop off the mail when he smelled smoke. It was fire season, so there were a lot of forest fires burning, and smelling smoke wasn't out of the ordinary. But that day, the Sacramento, California Branch 133 member had the wherewithal to look up. I wondered if someone was barbecuing, Shannon said, but he didn't see anyone. Then he noticed flames shooting up at the end of a balcony. He started pressing on his horn, hoping to get the attention of somebody who lived there. Thankfully, a resident of another unit came running down from the pool two buildings away. After Shannon pointed out the flames, the resident ran to grab a hose nearby and started spraying the flames. Meanwhile, Shannon called 911 and went to warn the other residents. The fire department arrived quickly and put out the flames. The carrier later learned that the fire had started from a cigarette butt becoming embedded in a beam and the firefighters had to cut that part out. If Shannon hadn't called 911, firefighters said, the blaze might have started back up, even though the flames appeared to be squashed by the hose. The 20-year Air Force veteran said of being called a hero, I just happened to be there, but I guess it feels good, you know. I'm just glad I was alert enough since it's fire season and we're always smelling smoke. Carrier comes to aid of injured dog walker. One cold January day, Buffalo Western New York Branch 3 member Nick Nixter Nick Nichter was parked in front of a house on his route, an ice storm pelting down around him. It was extremely slippery outside, so the letter carrier was being extra careful. A woman walked by with a large Newfoundland. She was a professional dog walker. I saw her every day, Nichter explained. On the other side of the street was a woman walking two dogs he'd never seen before. One of the dogs was off-leash. Upon noticing the other dogs, the Newfoundland got excited and started pulling toward the other side of the street. The dog walker was pulled onto a patch of ice and slipped, breaking her arm. There was blood everywhere, Nichter recounted. Immediately, the six-year carrier jumped out of his vehicle and grabbed the Newfoundland. However, the dog from the other side of the street came running. His owner said, My dog is not friendly. He's going to attack the dog, Nichter said. He held onto the Newfoundland and threw his bag at the unfamiliar dog, who started biting the bag. The woman grabbed the dog and they left. Nistra stayed with the dog walker until emergency services arrived, which took about 25 minutes. While the woman was in the hospital, a neighbor cared for the Newfoundland. She was in the hospital for an entire day and told Nistra that she still doesn't have full use of her arm. The carrier doesn't feel like his actions were particularly heroic, though. It feels like nothing out of the ordinary, Nitscher said. Every day at the Postal Service feels like a good day for the community. Eye on the elderly. Ryan Ritchie knows his customers on his route in Wildwood, New Jersey well. The Cape Atlantic, New Jersey Branch 903 member has carried the mail since 2010 and has a routine with one of his elderly customers, Jane. She hears him shut her mailbox and comes to the door to fetch it each time before he leaves. But one day in February, Jane didn't show up. Richie knocked on the door and got no answer, so he continued his route. The next day, though, she still hadn't brought in her mail, so he knocked on the door again. Concerned when she didn't answer, he checked with a neighbor who also hadn't seen the woman lately and called the police. When officers arrived, they found Jane unable to move after she had suffered a stroke. She was taken to the hospital and, after recovering, returned to her home. She told Richie later, I could hear you, but I couldn't even reach my phone to call for help. The carrier said she was extremely happy that he was there for her 
and expected her at the door, he said, adding, we have a bond that I'll never forget. Help on the way. It was a cold day in February 2022 when Newington, Connecticut carrier Benito Vargas was delivering on his route and noticed a man lying face down on a driveway. The Hartford Branch 86 carrier ran over to the man, and when he reached him, he realized that the man had fallen on black ice, hitting his head and losing consciousness. Vargas took the man's pulse, which was faint. The eight-year carrier remembered that the man was married, so he ran to the man's house to alert his wife. Vargas then called 911. I tried to make him comfortable on the ground until the paramedics and police showed up, the 20-year Army veteran said. The man's injuries turned out to be significant, and his wife said of the situation, I can only imagine what might have happened if Benito hadn't been there. Vargas downplayed his role in the situation. I don't feel like I was a hero because this is something that anyone can do, the carrier said. But they feel like I was a hero because I don't know how much time he was on the ground, and if I wasn't in the area, they might not have figured out that he was on the ground. On a hot day in September 2022, Salt Lake City, Utah branch 111 member James Fenton was delivering on his route and passing through a street when he heard someone screaming for help. He searched for a source and quickly found a woman fallen behind parked cars in a driveway. The woman, Linda Stone, explained that she had fallen an hour and a half before and she was unable to move. She also didn't have any way to call for help. The six-year Army veteran called 911. Realizing that Stone's injuries were serious, Fenton kept her alert by talking to her to stop her from going into shock. Stone told Fenton that she was afraid she'd die from the heat. Fenton called some of Stone's family members to help keep her calm. Emergency services arrived soon after, and Stone received medical attention for what was determined to be a broken hip. Fenton said of being called a hero, It's pretty cool, but it sucks that someone had to get hurt for that to happen. On page 20 is, New York Carrier Accomplishes Rare Feet, Donates Two Organs. Not many people can claim to be living organ donors, about 6,500 each year, but it's even more rare to give twice. Indeed, fewer than 100 donors have provided both a kidney and part of their liver, according to the United Network for Organ Sharing, the nonprofit organization managing the U.S. organ transplant system. One such person is Rochester, New York Branch 210 member Michael Ashley. In 2002, Ashley donated a kidney to his adoptive father, and in 2021, he donated a section of his liver to an anonymous stranger after he wasn't a match for his brother-in-law. Ashley's adoptive father was diabetic. With diabetes, kidney failure is often a prolonged result, and so he was on dialysis, he said. None of his father's biological family was a match. At the time, Ashley was on active duty in the Army and moving from Germany, where he was stationed, to Fort Lewis in Washington State. He had a bit of time off and to make the transition back to the United States, so he headed to New York to visit family before having to report for duty on base. I was back at home in the Rochester area, and that afforded us the perfect time for me to get tested, he said, which included a multitude of tests, starting with an ultrasound and then an MRI. They thought the chances were kind of slim because we weren't biologically related. It actually worked out. After speaking with his wife and completing the move to the new military base, he petitioned the Army for permission to donate, which was granted, and he returned to Rochester for the procedure. My dad was just a great man, Ashley said. He had given me a great life, and I wanted to return it in kind as best I could. He wasn't nervous. Personally, I've had a lot of experience with surgery, 
I had a car accident with a ruptured spleen. I'd had a surgery when I was a little kid. I've had a knee surgery in high school, he said. I didn't have a big aversion to hospitals or needles or doctors in general. In fact, I had a lot of confidence in what they could do. It really wasn't a consideration. When the ruptured spleen had healed, it left some adhesion to the kidney. It was a little bit more complicated than they were normally used to, but it went off without a hitch, the carrier said. After three days in the hospital, he returned home, and he hasn't had any further effects from the procedure in the past two decades. I feel normal, and I don't really take precautions, he said. Probably a doctor would say, make sure you're staying on top of things and all that, but it really isn't a concern, and it wasn't a concern to the doctors 20 years hence. Ashley, who became a letter carrier in 2006 following eight years in the Army, found out in 2021 that his brother-in-law needed a new liver due to liver cancer. He turned to his wife. We already knew the ins and outs, Ashley said. We discussed it and came to the conclusion that I would try. We found out fairly readily that I wasn't even a blood type match for him. Ashley says he wasn't familiar with altruistic donation prior to this. I thought it's something that's solicited, that they put out a call to friends and family, or to people that know the person, he said. But I had heard that he might potentially be getting a liver donation just out of the blue from someone he didn't know, just by virtue of being on the list. Unfortunately, a liver donation didn't ultimately work out for Ashley's brother-in-law, as he wasn't able to suspend chemotherapy treatments for his cancer, which had metastasized, long enough to get surgical treatment. Because of his worsening health condition, he no longer was a viable candidate for organ donation. However, learning about altruistic donation planted a seed in the carrier's mind. After already having come to the conclusion that it was something I was willing to do for my brother-in-law, I was like, well, it's not a far stretch to just go one step further and just do it, Ashley said. The person's name isn't a concern. It's all about what they need from you. The one thing that gave him pause was his children, who had been born since he last donated an organ. Once you've done this, you can't do it again, he explained of liver donation. Sometimes people are a little hesitant to go forward with it, with the idea that they don't have it banked for possible future needs, but they also have a cutoff. Because he's 50 now, and the age cutoff for liver donations is 60, as the liver doesn't grow back as well the older one gets, he figured he would age out of the donating opportunity regardless within the next decade. It made the decision for me personally just a little bit easier in that regard, he said. He soon contacted the transplant clinic at the University of Rochester. It took a little bit of doing, because most of the online application required you to submit a name for the person that you were looking to donate for to tie you into a case file that they had already had. He said, adding that while initiating the application, I was a little afraid that I would just be disqualified from having already done a kidney, that they were going to say, we can't put that much stress on your system. But they said it's not in and of itself an exclusionary thing. He completed a phone interview to provide medical history, and then the clinic initiated the screening process. I just went through a battery of tests, the blood lab work, and then some ultrasounds, x-rays, CT scans, and all that, and it was exhaustive, Ashley said, adding that it included a psychological evaluation and verification that he had a personal support system and an understanding employer. Once I actually got the thumbs up from the screening process, it was just a matter of weeks before they had a match for it, he said. Ashley said it was incredible to be part of the donation. They called me first to just verify that I would be available for the surgery and the transplants, so I actually got the call before the recipient did, he said. But they told me, right after this, we're calling the recipient and telling them. And it was a feeling you really can't describe, to know that in a few minutes that they were going to get that random phone call to tell them that this was happening. There are two lobes to the liver, 
For Ashley's donation, about 66% of one lobe was donated, and the remaining portion was expected to regenerate to about 85% of its original size. Following the procedure in November 2021, which went smoothly, Ashley has an 8-inch scar along his sternum. For all intents and purposes, it was painless, he said. I never had to take anything stronger than Tylenol during the four days I was in the hospital. Ashley had extensive follow-ups to monitor the regeneration, including lab work every week for the first few months, and he now has periodic MRIs and CT scans. He didn't know whom he was donating to, as the process went through a transplant coordinator. After a certain period, when the recipient is looking pretty stabilized and I'm doing fine, then they ask us if we're open to an exchange of information, he said, adding that the woman who received his liver donation called him a few months later. It was nice to know that she was doing okay and on the rebound. The carrier used sick leave and administrative leave for organ donation granted by USPS and was appreciative of the support he subsequently received, noting that the donation couldn't have happened otherwise. Minus a couple of lifting restrictions and things like that, I was back to work within 60 days, he said. Upon his return in early 2022, he was honored at his station with a plaque and a breakfast. Branch 210 Vice President Monique Mate says that the recognition is well-deserved. Mike is one of the best guys you would ever come across, she said. I can personally say he's the most selfless person there is. I've never heard him complain, ever, and never heard a bad word about him. Though the attention has been awkward for him, the carrier is grateful for the spotlight it brings to organ donation, particularly altruistic donation, and he encourages anyone to look into the process. There wasn't a big requirement of me other than just the simple act of pursuing it. There was not a financial component for me, he said. The donation was something I was perfectly willing to do, and heck, I might have done it even sooner if I had been aware of it, he added. So I love the attention that it gets, because if just one person reads an article and says, wow, I didn't know your liver regenerated, and that you could just toss it up in the air for someone to claim, and that it's possible that there might be someone out there that would do it, it would certainly make everything worth it. He's in awe of the concept of a transplant donation chain. Maybe the recipient that got my liver had someone that she knew that hadn't matched with her and was disappointed by that, just as I was with my brother-in-law, he said. And then they say, well, look at what just happened. She got it from a stranger. Maybe now, even though I can't be her match, I can be that stranger for the next person. And so they donate. And so it kind of takes all these unmatchable people and it finds matches for them. He added, a lot of people do have someone in their life that would gladly do it for them if they only could, if they were only A blood type instead of B blood type. But somewhere out there, there is an A blood type that needs one too. And so if you are willing to do it for your cousin, for your parent, it's something to consider to do for someone else's cousin or parent. And then the ball just keeps rolling. There are currently 104,234 people on the national transplant waiting list, according to the Federal Health Resources and Services Administration. While organ donation is not for everyone, Ashley notes, the process is very controlled and you're protected. They walk you through it, and if it's not feasible, they don't pursue it. There was zero pressure. Technological advances also have helped mitigate complications. In the 21st century, I would say there is a fairly minimal risk, especially with the extensive screening, the carrier said. The surgeon was talking about 3D models. They literally scan your liver and the vascular connections, and then he gets it on the computer with AI, artificial intelligence, and he can rotate at 360 degrees. So he's already seen my liver before he's even cut me open. Nearly two years on from his second organ donation, Ashley is back to feeling 100% and experiencing no adverse effects. And he says he feels fortunate to have been able to go through such a positive and life-changing experience twice. 
I'm a man. I can't give birth, he said. And so it was one of the greater gifts that I felt you could give someone. It just was an incredible experience from my end. And that's why I enjoyed talking about it so much. Because from start to finish, there were just so few drawbacks to it. And because, as he noted, he hopes his story might motivate others to look into participating. NALC makes RAA, RGA, and HQ staff appointments. President Brian L. Renfro appointed Jeanette Triana as a Regional Administrative Assistant, RAA, for Region 9, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, and South Carolina, effective September 4th. Triana began carrying the mail in Coral Gables, Florida in 2000, joining South Florida Branch 1071. She earned a bachelor's degree in business administration and a master's degree in accountancy while working as a carrier. She served her branch in several ways, including as a root adjustment team member, steward, trustee, formal A representative, step B team member, secretary, treasurer, vice president, and executive vice president. Triana was appointed branch president in August 2021, a position she held until her appointment as RAA. President Renfro appointed Patrick Baker of Jefferson City, Missouri, Branch 127, as a Regional Grievance Assistant, RGA, for Region 5, Missouri, Iowa, Nebraska, and Kansas. After serving in the Army, Baker joined the Postal Service as a clerk in 1999 and moved to the carrier craft two years later, carrying the mail in Jefferson City. He became an alternate steward and then a steward in 2008. He was elected president of his branch and served from 2010 until his appointment as RGA. Baker also has served as an on-the-job instructor, district evaluation and adjustment team member for route adjustments, route inspection trainer, and arbitration advocate, and was instrumental in his branch's success with fundraising for the Muscular Dystrophy Association. He graduated from the NALC Leadership Academy in May. The president named Crystal Smith of Central Kentucky Branch 361 as an assistant to the president for community services. She was appointed effective July 31st. Smith began her postal career as a transitional employee in 2011 and converted to career status in 2014. She served as a steward, organizer, on-the-job instructor, and branch food drive coordinator and was elected recording secretary of her branch in 2020. Hi, I'm Paul Borner, your executive vice president. And I'll be reading my September officer's column titled, So What is a Labor Union? A labor union can be defined as an organization of workers formed for the purpose of advancing its members' interests in respect to wages, benefits, and working conditions. The purpose of a labor union can also be explained as the mechanism for union members to come together to make workplace improvements. The foundation of a labor union is the workers who join together in membership for the betterment of all within the group. It is at that point of solidarity when workers can truly thrive and achieve their goals. One of the most important activities the National Association of Letter Carriers engages in is the organizing of city letter carriers. As a member of NALC, you should have a sense of pride in knowing that you belong to one of the most organized open shop unions in the American labor movement in terms of membership. NALC boasts a long history of being a well-organized union with a sustained membership base in the low to mid-90th percentile. In simple terms, this translates to more than 90% of all city letter carriers voluntarily join and maintain membership in NALC. 
There are numerous reasons for being a member of NLC, not the least of which involves joining with other city letter carriers in the common goal to protect and enforce the hard-won rights and benefits secured by those who came before. Most rights and benefits afforded to workers today are a direct result of victories won by labor. We must always keep a careful watch in order to maintain and enforce these rights and benefits that we have achieved. As NLC continues to build on strengthening wages, benefits, and working conditions for America's city letter carriers. This effort, however, cannot be accomplished single-handedly, but rather requires activism and solidarity from the members of a unified organization. Over the last several years, NALC has ramped up its organizing activities to a new level with the formalizing of the carrier academies that include a union orientation segment. At orientation, newly hired city letter carriers are met by NALC organizers who provide a wealth of information about the history of our union as well as present-day efforts. Each organizer takes time during the presentation to explain the importance of joining NLC, answer any questions posed by the newly hired city letter carriers, and ultimately ask them to join our great union. Upon completion of each orientation session, the organizer provides status reports to the National Business Agent Office reflecting the organizing results for the particular session. The MBA office then enters the information into an NLC headquarters database that compiles the organizing results from all NLC orientations around the country. The MBA then reports those results to each individual branch for follow-up discussions with the new city letter carriers employees as they enter their signed installations. Every newly signed member of NELC receives a welcome packet of information designed to further educate them on the importance of NELC membership and the history of NELC, including information about their rights and benefits as a city letter carrier. The packet contains numerous items, including a welcome letter from their national business agent, an NELC shirt, an NELC lanyard, a NLC constitution, and a copy of the national agreement to name a few. The success rate of this process is proven as these organizers are at the forefront of maintaining a well-organized NLC. I want to thank each of them for their dedication and hard work. NLC also produces automated reports to assist branches in identifying non-members in their respective branch. These reports can be accessed at the branch level by the president or designees and recording secretary through the members-only portal on the NELC website. Many branches do a phenomenal job recruiting new members, for which I applaud them. Those efforts do not go unnoticed. While we should most definitely pride ourselves on the success NLC enjoys in organizing city letter cares to strengthen our union, we must always remember that the work never ends. New employees will continue to be hired in our craft, providing opportunities to organize. In addition to new employees, we must continue our efforts to organize non-members already in the craft who, for whatever reason, either never joined the union or resigned their membership at some point in the past. It is equally important to ensure that those non-members understand the history of NLC as well as the benefits of membership. 
Always keep in mind that the union is you and every member should work to build on our house of solidarity and unionism by encouraging those in our ranks to join NALC. This is Sarah Thomas reading Vice President James D. Henry's column titled NALC Needs You. In recent years, USPS has been facing challenges that are sometimes difficult for it to manage. The landscape, due to technology and competition, has caused management to sometimes behave in a manner not consistent with our collective bargaining agreement, thereby adversely affecting the workroom floor by requiring letter carriers to have to work inordinate amounts of overtime. It's NALC's mission to make sure management does not violate the requirement to not exceed the maximum hours work limit and to maintain a safe, hazard-free, and harmonious work environment. Therefore, the need for NALC to formally address the contract violations and carriers concerned through the grievance arbitration process has risen exponentially, resulting in sometimes an overwhelming volume of grievances for the local steward. To face the ever-increasing and seemingly willful and deliberate contractual violations, the need for more shop stewards is at an all-time high. I sometimes like to refer to shop stewards as warriors, since they are on the front line every day fighting the good fight, representing letter carriers in every way necessary to redress wrongs and ensure that letter carriers' contractual rights are upheld. If you are already a steward, stay encouraged and maintain the line. However, I'm requesting all those who have ever thought about becoming a shop steward to now step up to the plate. If you have not previously considered becoming a shop steward, there is no time like the present. It is easy for all of us to become comfortable and expect someone else is going to do the fighting. However, the right thing to do is to get in the ring, stand by, and with your brothers and sisters, affect change and help uphold the integrity of our national agreement. Doing the right thing generally means making decisions that are not based on your own personal needs and that don't expand your popularity or enforce your personal beliefs. It means doing what is best for the greater or common good. I realize that to become a shop steward would require a commitment. Commitment is a pledge to give your time and energy to something or someone you believe in. Practicing commitment is not always easy and requires incredible mental resilience to maintain particularly in the face of adversity. But we all have the opportunity to live this core value every day. There are a few causes more worthy than committing to becoming a shop steward to represent our fellow letter carriers and the values of the NALC. Shop stewards provide a confidential way for members to bring forward their ideas and concerns. But most importantly, it is a steward's job to inspire, lead, and build a sense of unity and solidarity among the wide range of workers in our union. These are some of the qualities of a good union steward. Professionalism, integrity, credibility, fairness, non-discrimination, leadership, trustworthiness, knowledge. The job of a shop steward is an essential part of the NALC. Shop stewards are important for the well-being of the letter carrier craft. They play the role of an intermediary between the employees and management to ensure the best working conditions and that all parties adhere to the collective agreements. The duties of a shop steward include organizing workers, representing workers to management, negotiating workers' issues with management, ensuring implementation of agreements, building support for the union, and educating members about its principles. The time is now. 
The NALC wants you. The letter carriers need you. You might say to yourself, I can't do the job because I don't know what or how to do the job of a shop steward. Have no fear. Anyone who decides to become a shop steward will be provided with the necessary training either through your local union or the National Business Agent's office. We're all in this together, and the more warriors we have, the more formidable we become, and the more expeditiously issues of the letter carrier craft are addressed. Who out there will heed the call to stewardship? Who will commit to the greater and common good? Who will do the right thing just because it's the right thing to do? Who will join me along with thousands of other NALC representatives and be willing to stand shoulder to shoulder, back to back, to collectively fight for one another? I hope it's you. Hi, this is National Secretary Treasurer Nicole Ryan, and this is my article on membership pens and more. Article 2, Section 5 of the NELC Constitution contains information on the years of membership pens available to NELC members. Per the Constitution, the branch secretary must write to the office of the National Secretary Treasurer that a member will complete the necessary years of membership and the pen will be sent to the branch to present to the member. The notification can be made two ways either in writing to the Office of the National Secretary-Treasurer or by the branch secretary through the members-only portal. The new PIN request program on the members-only portal sends the branch's request directly to headquarters electronically. Membership PINs are provided to branches at no charge beginning at 25 years and for each five-year increment thereafter. Membership PINs for years 5, 10, 15, and 20 are available for purchase by branches from the online NELC store. NELC members who have completed 50 years of membership are awarded a Life Membership Gold Card that entitles them to all privileges of membership in the NELC without payment of dues. Again, all requests for Gold Cards must be made by the branch per the Constitution. Please be aware that Gold Cards are a special order and must be engraved by an outside union vendor, so branches should allow four to six weeks for delivery. Branches should also be aware that special recognition is given to members who reach 70 years of membership and at each five-year interval thereafter with a suitable plaque. Transferring membership from one branch to another after retirement. Any retiree in good standing in their branch moving to another city may transfer membership to the branch located in such city if they wish to do so. Article 2, Section 3 of the Constitution for the Government of Subordinate and Federal Branches, or CGSFB, contains provisions for transferring membership from one branch to another as a retired member. On occasion, the membership department does not receive the required information necessary to process the transfer, which causes a delay. To assist with the issues the membership department encounters, below is what is needed, per Article 2, Section 3C of the CGSFB, to complete a transfer of membership for a retiree wishing to do so. The Constitution states, in the case of a retiree member seeking to transfer membership, they shall make application to the recording secretary of their branch, who shall ascertain from the financial secretary if all dues and assessments charged against them on that date are fully paid. If so, it shall be the duty of the recording secretary to announce at the next regular meeting of the branch that the application has been received and all obligations discharged. There being no objections, the recording secretary will at once forward to the recording secretary of the branch with which affiliation is desired a letter of recommendation. The letter shall be read at the first regular meeting of the receiving branch held after its receipt 
and the transferred individual shall be considered a member at that time. The recording secretary of the branch shall then notify the recording secretary of the original branch that the transferee has been received into membership. Once this process has been completed, a copy of the letter of recommendation from the originating branch, as well as a copy of the letter from the receiving branch that the transferee has been received into membership, must be forwarded to the membership department along with the request that the transfer of membership be completed. Changing bank accounts. On occasion, my office receives calls from branches or state associations that are changing bank accounts, asking what information is needed at headquarters to change the account that dues are direct deposited into. If a branch or state association is planning to change banks, an officer should contact the membership department for an electronic deposit change form. The form must be completed and signed by the president and the secretary treasurer and returned to headquarters along with a voided check from the new account. We recommend that the old bank account remain open until a dues deposit is verified as being made into the new account. Dues rosters and retiree lists. Branch presidents, secretaries, and treasurers, as well as state presidents, secretaries, and treasurers, have their branch biweekly dues rosters quarterly branch retiree dues rosters, and monthly state dues rosters available to them through the members-only portal. The rosters can be sorted, downloaded, saved, and printed. Also available to branch presidents, secretaries, and treasurers is a retired member listing for their branch. The list includes all current retired members of the branch and notes which of the members are gold card members. Any member showing on the list is pending 1189 indicates that NELC headquarters has not yet received an 1189 from the member. Hi, this is Mac I. Julian, your Assistant Secretary Treasurer. I'll be reading my September officer's column titled, In Conflict. In my July article, I wrote that I will provide more insight on submitted bylaws that have been denied because they were found to be in conflict. Those of you who have seen those two words in your response letter from the Committee of Laws know exactly what I was referring to. In fact, I've had quite a few conversations with members seeking clarification on what they did wrong. You or the committee have been tasked with updating the branch or state bylaws. You have followed the NALC Constitution to the best of your ability, only to get a thumbs down from the Committee of Laws. As the chair of the committee, I can assure you that we are not making decisions based on our personal preferences or dislikes. Article 11 of the Constitution states in relevant part about the duties of the Committee of Laws. The proposed bylaws of subordinate branches and state associations except those fixing the time and place of meetings and the amount of initiation fees and dues and reinstatement fees shall be submitted for approval by this committee. If they do not conflict with the constitution or laws of this association, such bylaws shall be approved. So you see, it doesn't matter how we feel about what you submit or our personal opinions, as long as it is not in conflict with any parts of the Constitution, it shall be approved. Likewise, it doesn't matter if the proposed bylaw or amendment is the desire of a branch or a state association. 
If it's in conflict, it will not be approved. This is stipulated in Article 15 of the Constitution. Each branch or state association may make, alter, or rescind such bylaws, rules, and regulations from time to time as may deem most expedient, providing they do not in any way conflict with this Constitution. Literally, we are constitutionally required to make sure that bylaws submitted for approval are not in conflict with the constitutions. This is why we ask for a current copy of the branch or state bylaws when changes are made. Often, we will find conflict in previously approved bylaws because they haven't been updated and subsequent changes were made to the Constitution by the members at a national convention. Such changes could require amendments to your bylaws, or there may be a provision in your bylaw that has been clarified by a national president, past or present, since its inception. Just because it's been in your bylaws since forever does not mean that it can remain. The following are the most common items that we have denied since I have been on the Committee of Laws simply because they conflicted with the NALC Constitution. The Officers of the Branch. This is found in Article 4, Section 1 of the Constitution for the Government of Subordinate and Federal Branches. This is not surprising considering there was a change to this at the National Convention in Chicago last year. Now, every branch must have a mutual benefit association representative along with the other required officers of the branch. If any of those listed positions are not among the elected officers, then you are in conflict. Even for smaller branches, this may require some of these positions to be combined, but the duties need to be accounted for in the bylaws. Branch funds spending the branch money. This is in Article 12, Section 3 of the Constitution for the Government of Subordinate and Federal Branches. We consistently find proposals that would allow the president, executive board, or another officer to authorize the spending of branch funds. This is a no-no. No appropriation shall be made except when ordered by a majority vote of the members present and voting at a regular branch meeting. Officers may be allowed to spend the branch money between meetings, but this is limited to emergencies and to an amount specified in the bylaws. Of course, this is outside the allocation of recurring bills, reimbursements, or compensation. Sick relief and funeral benefits. This falls under the, it has been in our bylaws forever category. Article eight of the constitution for the government of subordinate and federal branches covers this. Whereas it states that branches may make provisions in their bylaws for the payment of sick relief or funeral benefits, it can't make it mandatory for members to pay for it. Using the general fund to pay for such a program is essentially making it mandatory for all the members to finance. This was a clarification 
or ruling provided by President Sombrato. So, when we receive bylaws and see any reference to automatically providing flowers or payment out of the general fund, it is flagged for being in conflict. Branches can still send flowers or donate to a charity upon the death or illness of a member or their family, but it must be the will of the membership in attendance and voting at a regular branch meeting. Remember, Article 12, Section 3, I hope this has been helpful for those working on proposals or amendments. We will be going over this and more at the Secretary Treasurer training in San Antonio in September and Pittsburgh in October. If you have any questions before then, you can just give me a call. Hello, this is Stephen Stewart, Assistant to the President for City Delivery, and I will be reading Director of City Delivery Christopher Jackson's article from the September edition of the Postal Record. This article has been updated from the printed version and will be available online at NALC.org. In this month's article, I would like to discuss a few notifications recently received from the Postal Service. Electronic Key Test In July, the Postal Service notified me of its intent to pilot test the use of an electronic key to access mail receptacles. The pilot consists of replacing postal arrow locks and keys on mail receptacles with a new electronic lock and key system. A cabinet designed to house the keys has been installed at the Hayward, California Post Office, while approximately 45 compatible locks have been installed across the unit's delivery area. The electronic key must be docked within the cabinet on a programmed interval daily to stay valid at the unit. If the key does not complete the docking process, the key will not work the following morning. Each carrier can retrieve a key from the cabinet by entering their personal identification number, or PIN, on its digital keypad. The cabinet will release a key only to its assigned carrier. Once programmed, the key will work on the applicable program locks for a specific window of time assigned by postal management. Once the window has passed, the key stops working. USPS says it hopes that the electronic locking key will improve key accountability, security of the mail, and provide safety to letter carriers. Testing of the system began July 10 and is expected to continue for approximately three months. Testing of this concept does not change any existing national agreement or USPS handbook and manual provisions. MDD software version 7.75. Also in July, the Postal Service detailed its latest update to the Mobile Delivery Device Technical Refresh, or MDDTR, release 7.75. The software update includes several enhancements to the timekeeping functionality of the MDDTR. With the update, a carrier can remain on the clock when moving from one work location to another without creating a clock ring error in the Time and Attendance Control System, or TACS, used by the Postal Service to track employee work hours. Previously, a carrier who began their tour in one delivery unit on an MDDTR and later made a move to work at a separate delivery unit on another MDDTR was required to make a second begin tour clock ring on that new device. Making the second begin tour clock ring created an error in tax. With software version 7.75, the second begin to a clock ring is now suppressed on the MDDTR when a carrier moves to another location 
and should prevent the clock ring error. This version also makes it possible for a carrier to enter a begin tour in one unit on the MDDTR and identify a second destination unit where the carrier will be moving to by finance number under the new begin tour with travel operation code option before leaving the initial unit. A supervisor must first add the finance number of the second unit as an option for a carrier to select on the MDDTR to complete this move on the device. This change allows for travel time between offices after begin tours entered in the initial location. Other enhancements to the MDDTR focus on updating a carrier route's edit book. Currently, USPS downloads an address management system or AMS route file to the MDDTR, which provides an opportunity for carriers to update AMS information on the device. Version 7.75 will allow carriers to update three address markers based on their knowledge of a route by either scanning the intelligent mail barcode or IMB label on a piece of mail or manually entering an address of a location where a carrier is looking to make an edit on the MDDTR. The address marker options are relay, indicating the location of a relay box or the first address of a relay on the route's line of travel, park point, indicating where a carrier parks the vehicle on a park and loop route, and collection box, indicating the location of collection boxes on the route. The update also allows carriers to edit the vacant indicator regarding occupancy of an address and a usage code to indicate whether an address is residential, business, or a combination of the two in the same way that they can now make edits to an address marker. USPS states that carriers can review the changes made with their supervisor prior to cradling the device at the end of the day. However, a supervisor's review is not needed to upload the changes to AMS. Some of the updates to the MDDTR have come from feedback we received from the membership. I appreciate your input. It helps fuel our monthly discussions with USPS. My staff and I will continue to monitor postal initiatives and provide updates on any effects they may have on city carriers. This month's column highlights a case in which management flipped the script after doing something positive. I received the following message from Paul Gilley, past president of Mid-Michigan Branch 256. Paul has contributed to my column in the past. He is insightful and he cares. He offers as follows. We have lost two carriers to suicide, one last month, one last week. Naturally, the employer paraded around the employee assistance counselors as some form of demonstration that they actually give a crap about any one of us. But any suggestion that we are even remotely close to human beings instead of soulless automatons suffered an instant death as well. Immediately after the EAP representative concluded her presentation, asking us to hold these individuals and their families in our hearts, the next words for management were harsh, assaulting, and abhorrent. I was too disheartened to catch the expression on the EAP representative's face as management took the floor, admonishing the entire group of carriers, stating that perhaps a small few were wasting time, deviating from their routes, or somehow tampering with the scanners that leave breadcrumbs for management to snort as they electronically track us from our letter carrier cases to the bathroom to the 85-year-old patron's porch 
where she waits most days for the letter carrier to hand deliver her mail because she is too frail to make it out to the mounted box at the street and back inside safely. I used the word automaton earlier because I still hear President Vince Sombrato's voice from a quarter century ago as he fought for us and an article he wrote stating then that we are letter carriers, we are human beings, we are not automatons. For decades, I have served the patrons, but never the minions who have been promoted solely through a collective leadership style of sickening reverse Darwinism. As I have walked the equivalent of more than four times around the globe with the weighted satchel on my shoulder, I have watched our national officers' endless efforts as they try to improve the environment on the workroom floor. It seems that no torch can span the abyss. Amid endless daily insults and accusations from reprehensible pseudo-leaders, the collateral damage continues to mount. One death, one suicide, one broken soul or spirit at a time. To them, we are just numbers, and the numbers are never good enough. We are never good enough. To our families, friends, and our patrons who depend on us, we are still very much human and an integral part of this world. That is what we hold on to as we force ourselves through the workroom doors every day. But we are hurting in ways we cannot describe. Thank you, Paul, for that. The loss of a coworker, a member of our work family, is a painful event. Losing them to suicide is even more painful. However, Having a member of the management team destroy any goodwill on that day described above is devastating. While we try to process the loss and attempt to understand what happened, management lunges at us with a dagger in hand and destroys the efforts put on display a few minutes earlier. To the managers running the USPS at the district and area level, you should be investigating the above and taking action. That is, of course, if you care. To the power brokers of LaFont Plaza, this behavior runs against all that you promised in the 1992 Joint Statement on Violence and Behavior in the Workplace. While you all explore what it takes to elevate employee engagement, here's an idea. Stop mistreating our craft employees. Read, learn, and apply the commitments made in the Joint Statement to the supervisors you hire and through all promotions that follow. Quit breeding the anger and hate that ruins the work environment and so many work locations throughout the country. Mental health experts would help change the culture, so quit hiring prison guards to supervise our employees. EAP services are intended to be a benefit negotiated into our national agreement, providing for assessment, short-term counseling, training, and improving mental health well-being. Quit ignoring this plea from our craft. Article 35 of the National Agreement provides for a robust employee assistance program. Our current EAP service provider is New Directions Behavioral Health. Connect with them, whichever way is easiest for you. Their phone number, 1-800-EAP, the number four, the word you. That's 800-327-4968. The TTY number is 877 492 7341. The web is EAP, the number four, the word you.com. In closing, I bring to your attention an Occupational Health and Safety Administration initiative that led to the creation 
of the supporting mental health in the workplace, Getting Started, Guide for Frontline Supervisors. You can find this checklist at https www.osha.gov forward slash sites forward slash default forward slash files forward slash getting underscore started dash supervisor underscore 508.pdf. Can you imagine how much better our work environment would be if this were adopted? Let's help each other while we keep an eye on each other. Hi, I'm Daniel Toth. I am the Director of Retired Members for the National Association of Letter Carriers. I'll be reading my September 2023 Postal Record article titled, Documenting a Disability. Disability retirement is not something one desires or plans for. It becomes a necessity and much-needed benefit for those forced to consider disability retirement. The Office of Personnel Management, OPM, is the government agency that administers the Federal Employees Retirement System, FERS, and Civil Service Retirement System, CSRS, Disability Retirements. When applying for disability retirement, OPM places the responsibility to provide the necessary documentation on the applicant. Understanding what is required and providing the documentation out of the gate will help avoid processing delays. To read more about the basics of disability retirement, See the May 2021 retirement column. The form used to apply for disability retirement under CSRS and FERS is Standard Form 3112, Documentation in Support of Disability Retirement Application, and can be obtained by calling the Human Resource Shared Service Center, HRSSC, at 877-477-3273. TTY-866. 2607507 This article will address some but not all of the documentation necessary. All applicants should be sure to read all instructions on the form very carefully. One of the first considerations when applying for disability retirement is whether there is a deficiency in service and what that means according to OPM. In simple terms, the medical conditions are incompatible with useful service as a letter carrier. This is typically demonstrated by examining one's medically restricted activities that hinder or limit the delivery of mail and packages, i.e. the essential functions of the job. The evidence must be clearly connect the medical condition to the restrictions and be consistent with generally accepted medical practice such that other physicians would likely impose the same restrictions. Absence from work due to a medical condition can demonstrate a deficiency in service but on its own would not be sufficient. The Postal Service would need to state how the absences affect the accomplishment of its mission. Given the Postal Service's daily mission to the American public, along with the chronic understaffing, any absences are likely to support such a deficiency. After a deficiency is found and documented, the next step is to document that the deficiency is due to a medical condition. This could be either a disease or injury including psychiatric condition. Keep in mind that the medical conditions can be on the job, off the job, or any combination. In the eyes of a FERS or CSRS disability, it simply doesn't matter. On the portion of the form titled Physician Statement, 
are instructions that may at first glance appear mundane, but are vital nonetheless. The physician's statement must be provided on the doctor's letterhead stationary. With each question, the physician should number each item appropriately, and anything that is not applicable to the applicant should be specifically stated as not applicable. Any reference the physician makes to another report or diagnostic should be included as an attachment. Like any medical report, it should be signed by the physician. When the medical report is completed, it and any attachments should be placed into a sealed envelope and marked medical disability, privileged, private. The physician is to provide a comprehensive report of the history and current condition. This includes past and current physical findings and results of any diagnostics. Therapies and other procedures to ameliorate the condition should be included. The report must include specific information to show why the applicant is not able to perform their duties. The diagnosis of the applicant's condition must be included. Although it is not a requirement, OPM prefers that each diagnosis also be provided with the corresponding International Classification of Disease, ICD code. The physician must assess the longevity of the condition. Is the condition static, worsening, or improving? How long is the condition expected to last? The assessment should include the expected date of a full or partial recovery. To qualify, the condition must be expected to last for at least a year. The last component of the physician's report is to detail any restrictions. The restrictions should be stated along with why they have been provided and how long they are expected to be in effect. If a condition can be treated that would potentially return the employee to useful and efficient service, but that non-invasement treatment is refused, OPM may deny the application unless the applicant has religious beliefs pertaining to such treatment. Applying for disability retirement while injured or diseased can be a difficult process in a difficult time. Understanding what is expected from the application and providing everything from the get-go puts you in the best position possible. Hi, this is Jim Yates, NALC Director of Life Insurance. Today I'll be reading my September officer's column titled Information Security. The security of our members' personal information is a very high priority for all of us at the Mutual Benefit Association, the MBA. We have all become aware of major corporations, banks, and even state and federal government systems that have been attacked by hackers. As a result of these attacks, the sensitive personal information of millions of Americans has been compromised. Cybersecurity is among the most significant challenges for all business organizations, including the MBA. As such, we have had an information security program in place for several years based on a model law drafted by the National Association of Insurance Commissioners as well as our own operations. This program is reviewed and updated frequently to address ever-changing threats. Within MBA's information security program, we monitor and manage material risks, perform vendor and third-party oversight, have third-party intrusion tests performed, and can report on any security incidents and breaches. 
a portion of the monitoring of our intrusion prevention capabilities is automated and reported by our software and hardware systems. We continually strive to maximize the capabilities of our systems to stay ahead of attempts to compromise our data and to protect our membership. In addition to protecting our members' information on our computer systems from cyber attacks, we also take numerous steps to ensure that their information is secure no matter the format. When a member calls the MBA or the MBA calls a member regarding a policy, the member will be asked several questions to determine if they are the policy owner. The MBA will speak only to the policy owner regarding the details of a policy unless we have received permission from the owner of the policy to speak with someone else. Whenever a conversation regarding a policy takes place, whether initiated by the MBA or the member, notes are taken. These notes are then added to the policy file for future reference. We also maintain hard copies of our members' policy files. All hard copies of policy files and members' information are housed in a secure area. Additionally, all policy documents are electronically imaged and stored in our database, so they are always available should the hard copies be destroyed in the event of a disaster. Furthermore, the database is encrypted and backed up off-site. The database and its backup can be accessed only by the MBA from our office or our disaster recovery location if necessary. Anytime there is a request to withdraw funds from or cancel an annuity policy, the policy owner's signature is verified. This is taken a step further when a life insurance policy is canceled. In this case, the policy owner's signature must either be notarized or the signature must be verified by a branch officer. The MBA requires written and signed requests to add or make changes to a policy's beneficiary or to change the member's address of record. Any addition or changes to a beneficiary are processed immediately upon receipt at the MBA office to ensure that any benefit claims are paid to the proper individual per the policy owner's request. The MBA has policies in place to ensure that any communication via email that includes a member's private information is sent in an encrypted format. Additional policies are in place governing cell phone usage in the work area that contains our members' sensitive information. Our members' money is as important to us as their private information. Statements are mailed to the policy owners to confirm cash values, dividend amounts, and loan values. Policy owners should contact the MBA immediately if they notice any discrepancies. It is our goal to process all premium payments received in our office on the day received. Any payment that is not processed on the day received is secured in our safe until the next business day. Once these checks and money orders are processed, they are secured for an additional 90 days. After 90 days, the checks and money orders are shredded. This process is to comply with banking regulations. In addition to shredding any checks and money orders received at our office, MBA also shreds and discards documents that contains our members' information. These documents are kept under lock and key until shredding is complete by a shredding and records management company contracted by the MBA. Members who receive monthly annuity payments are required to provide proof of life annually by having their signature notarized on our proof of life letters. 
This ensures that our members are the individuals receiving the payments. For information regarding any of the MBA products, please call the MBA office toll-free at 800-424-5184, Tuesdays and Thursdays, 8 a.m. to 3.30 p.m., or call 202-638-4318, Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 3.30 p.m., all Eastern Time. You also can visit our website at nalc.org backslash MBA. Hi, I'm Stephanie Stewart, your Director of Health Benefits, and for my September officer's column, I would like to talk about how to lower healthcare costs. Over the last few years, we have all been affected by the economy. We don't have to look far. The price of gas, groceries, and of course, healthcare. Unfortunately, I don't have all the answers. But as a letter carrier, I understand that the rising cost of healthcare must remain competitive for our members in this ever-changing world. You have heard it before. This plan was built by letter carriers for letter carriers. But think about this for a minute. It's not just a slogan. It means something. Not only was the NALC health benefit plan built for us, by us, but it continues to be improved based on the needs of letter carriers. The vision that was started in 1950 is remarkable. There are many health plan options to choose from, but the NELC Health Benefit Plan is the only one that specifically serves letter carriers. Each year, and this coming benefit year is no exception, we will discuss letter carrier needs, wants, and the essential benefits that are required by the Office of Personal Management to determine what changes should be made to our benefit packages. We are also a not-for-profit plan, so we must review the cost of offering benefits and the costs associated with medical care that we spend each year. And the costs associated with medical care that we spend each year. These expenses are how we determine our plan premiums. In an effort to keep expenses as low as possible, the plan works diligently throughout the year to find ways to offset costs. We do this to avoid the alternative, which is to pass the expenses onto the members via premiums. This is part of the formula the plan uses. But did you know that as a member, you can also make a positive impact on your medical expenses and plan premiums? First, consider doing the following. Number one, when possible, always make sure to choose an in-network provider or facility. Although the plan offers out-of-network benefits, you will receive the best benefit and lower your out-of-pocket costs when utilizing a provider from the Cigna Healthcare Shared Administration OAP network. Number two, use LabCorp or Quest Diagnostic for your covered diagnostic lab services. Covered diagnostic lab services will be processed at no cost to the member. Number three, Reduce your out-of-pocket costs by asking your medical professional if generic drugs can be prescribed for your health issues. Number four, remember that the plan offers telehealth virtual visits for minor acute conditions. Take advantage of the $10 copayment per visit when possible versus paying for an in-person visit. Number five, take advantage of CVS Minute Clinics and Urgent Care Centers. CVS Minute Clinic offers convenient, high-quality care for minor illnesses, 
minor injuries, skin conditions, vaccination, physicals, and more. Urgent care centers are equipped to treat most conditions that are not life-threatening. Choosing an urgent care or a minute clinic over the emergency room, when appropriate, can save you time and money. Number six, the plan also offers many wellness programs or services to engage our members in their health planning. Review the plan's wellness programs and participate if they apply to you. And number seven, earn a health savings reward that can be used for eligible medical expenses from disease management, kicking of the nicotine habit, completion of the health assessment, and more. You can put money back in your pocket. If we take advantage of the benefits and programs that are relevant to each of us, we can save some money through the year. We can also earn some extra money from rewards, and maybe even more importantly, we will be working to improve our health. This, I think we can all agree, means more than having a little instant cash in our pocket today. And in the long term, improving our health can also translate to fewer overall medical expenses. Next, there's also a way you can help to make a positive impact on your plan premiums. And this one is even easier. Open season is just around the corner. If you are a member of this outstanding health benefit plan, encourage other letter carriers to join their plan, the only one built by them for them. As a member of the NELC health benefit plan, we know the value of belonging to this plan. Get the word out. I may have a unique perspective, but it's one worth stating. I know the positive effect we would see if all letter carriers were enrolled in the NELC health benefit plan. We all participated in the plan programs, and we all took advantage of the cost-saving benefits available to our members. It's pretty simple. More members, all taking advantage of potential savings, equals a positive effect on future premiums. We might be limited in our ability to control the rising costs of healthcare, but some things are within our reach. United, we can make a difference. Divided, we fall into the trap of accepting rising healthcare costs. Where do you stand? Until next month, take care. Hi, I'm Christopher Henwood, your assistant to the president for administrative affairs. I'll be reading the September 2023 contract talk titled, Overtime Equitability. The equitable distribution of overtime hours and opportunities is an important benefit to the city letter carrier craft that ensures parity. In most cases, such as bidding on assignments and selecting annual leave during the choice vacation period, seniority is the deciding factor. The distribution of overtime to full-time letter carriers on the Overtime Desire List, ODL, is one of the exceptions to the seniority rules. Under Article 8 of the National Agreement, management is required to ensure that the overtime hours, as well as the opportunities to work overtime, are kept equitable among those carriers on the ODL. Article 8, Section 5, contains the provisions regarding equitability and explains that when there is a need for overtime, employees on the ODL will be selected. This section also explains that during the quarter, every effort will be made to distribute the opportunities for overtime equitably among those signed up to the ODL. Equitability applies only to carriers who have signed up to the ODL. Article 8, Section 5.C.2 of the National Agreement states in part, A. 
When during the quarter the need for overtime arises, employees with the necessary skills having listed their names will be selected from the overtime desired list. B. During the quarter, every effort will be made to distribute equitably the opportunities for overtime among those on the overtime desired list. End quote. Of course, to distribute the overtime equitably, there needs to be a record or system to monitor the distribution. Article 8, Section 5.C.2.C explains. C. In order to ensure equitable opportunities for overtime, overtime hours worked and opportunities offered will be posted and updated weekly. End quote. Although the above provision is a requirement for management, many branches and shop stewards discover that the best way to prevent an equitable overtime distribution is to regularly review the posting and alert management to opportunities to improve the distribution. Heading off the prom avoids depriving letter carriers of their rights and the need to file grievance at the end of the quarter. Efforts to fix the prom also can be used as evidence to support a remedy when management does not make appropriate corrections to distribute the overtime. The methods used to calculate the inequitable distribution of overtime can vary depending on the circumstances. Shop stewards who are unsure what constitutes equitability in their section or installation should consult their branch president or national business agent for guidance. Prior to the 2016 National Agreement, the only overtime that was counted when determining equitability was time an ODL carrier worked more than eight hours off of their bid assignment or all work on a non-scheduled day. This provision made determining equitability more difficult, especially in situations where letter carrier was properly assigned in the time and attendance collection system tax. This language was changed in the 2016 National Agreement to count all hours worked, whether on or off a letter carrier's regular assignment on a regularly scheduled day. All overtime worked on a non-scheduled day continues to be counted as it was prior to 2016. The requirement to count all overtime is found in Article 8, Section 5.C.2.E, which states, E. All overtime hours worked by, and all opportunities offered to, employees on the overtime desired list, regardless of whether the overtime opportunity is on or off the employee's own route, will be considered and counted when determining quarterly equitability, end quote. The 2022 Joint Contract Administration Manual, JCAM, explains that the number of hours of overtime, as well as the number of opportunities for overtime, must be considered. Missed opportunities for overtime must be made up for in the quarter. Page 811 of the JCAM states, Missed opportunities for overtime, i.e. one ODL carrier worked instead of another, must be made up for with equitable distribution of overtime during the quarter unless the bypass carrier was not available, i.e. the carrier was on leave or working overtime on his or her own route on a regularly scheduled day, etc. End quote. Article 8, Section 5.C.2.F clarifies how work on holidays or designated holidays is counted, stating, F. Only overtime hours worked or opportunities offered beyond eight hours on a holiday or designated holiday will be considered and counted when determining equitability, end quote. Full-time flexible, FTF, employees can complicate equitability as they might have flexible reporting locations within an installation. When an FTF letter carrier works in the same overtime section for the entire quarter, determining their equitability is straightforward and the same as other ODL carriers. However, if the FTF works in multiple overtime sections during the quarter, only the share of overtime from the time they sign the ODL in the new section will be considered. Page 812 of the JCAM explains that FTF letter carriers will not be moved to circumvent 
their equitability rights, stating, However, full-time flexible employees will not be moved to another overtime section solely to circumvent the provisions of Article 8.5.C above. End quote. Although the rules governing the distribution of overtime to letter carriers on the ODL are straightforward, management often will fail to keep these carriers equitable during the quarter. When this occurs, letter carriers who are not kept equitable are entitled to a remedy for the violation. The appropriate remedy for violations of Article 8 Sections 5.C.2.A-C point point through C was established by National Arbitrator Howard Gamzer in case NCS 5426 dated April 3, 1979. According to Arbitrator Gamzer's award, management must either pay the letter carrier who was not equitable during the quarter or offer a makeup opportunity during the next quarter. The explanation of Arbitrator Gamzer's award is found on page 8-12 of the JCAM which states in part, the Postal Service must pay employees deprived of equitable opportunities for the overtime hours they did not work only if management's failure to comply with its contractual obligations under Article 8.5.C.2 shows a willful disregard or defiance of the contractual provision, a deliberate attempt to grant disparate or favorite treatment to an employee or group of employees, or caused a situation in which the equalizing opportunity could not be afforded within the next quarter. In all other cases, games are held, the proper remedy is to provide an equalizing opportunity in the next immediate quarter, or pay compensatory monetary award if this is not done, end quote. Determining the proper remedy requires an investigation into the specific facts of the case and applying arbitrator Gamzer's award. Equitable distribution of overtime protects letter carriers, but it must be monitored and maintained to be effective. Thanks to all the shop stewards and branch officers who play a role in enforcing the national agreement. On page 37 is the MDA report by Christina Vela-Davidson, read by Mike Shea. July branch challenge results. Brothers and sisters, July was a busy and outstanding fundraising challenge. The July branch challenge was the best branch challenge ever. You guys blew me away. I was so impressed with how branches and states have embraced these challenges since we began hosting them in 2020, raising hundreds of thousands of dollars. We had 64 branches or state associations participate in the July challenge, and 17 of those branches and state associations use the online fundraising tools provided by MDA. Drum roll, please. The total amount raised for the July branch challenge was $136,263.41. You guys went 36% higher than MDA's goal. Wow. With these funds, MDA was able to send the equivalent of 45 kids to MDA summer camp. As you see, every cent matters. You are amazing. The challenge totals by branches and state associations can be seen in the postal record. We have new MDA trinkets available for your MDA events. Please mail a copy of any receipts or checks along with a copy of the NALC MDA allocation form to the Region 9 office so that your branch can be properly recognized. NALC Region 9, attention, Christina Bella Davidson slash MDA, 1101 North Chase Parkway, Southeast, Suite 3, Marietta, Georgia, 30067. Thanks again for your continuous hard work helping to deliver the cure. Remember, by supporting MDA, you enhance letter carriers' public image, boost members' morale, and draw positive attention to NELC.
Also remember, NELC slash MDA allocations must be turned in the same calendar year as the event, no later than December 28th, to qualify for the NELC honor roll for that year. All raised funds must be sent to the National MDA Office in Chicago at Muscular Dystrophy Association, Inc. Attention, NALC, P.O. Box 7410354, Chicago, Illinois, 60674-0354. On page 39 is Assistant to the President for Community Services, Christina Vela-Davidson's staff report, read by Mike Shea. The DRF Grant Application Process What the NELC Disaster Relief Foundation, DRF, gives is not much, but I pray that it helps the NELC members in need. We can't replace what was lost, but I want you to know that we are always here for our members and their families. The foundation has been set up to function in two ways, by providing hands-on relief and by receiving donations to offer financial grants. With natural disasters increasing in frequency, the Disaster Relief Foundation grants can be considered only for property damage sustained to a primary residence, vehicle, or personal property from a hurricane, flood, tornado, wildfire, earthquake, severe storm, or other natural disaster. Damage declared by the applicant will be verified by the branch president or a designee. The following are the eligibility criteria that members must understand and follow. To complete your grant file, please see number 5 below, which lists all items that members must provide to the DRF. 1. Anyone seeking help must be an NELC member as defined by the NELC Constitution, Article 2, Section 1A. 2. Members do not have to wait for emergency relief or insurance claims to apply. 3. Those temporarily displaced from their uninhabitable primary residence must submit a signed personal narrative detailing the specific reasons for the anticipated duration of the displacement. 4. Applications for grants from DRF must be received no later than 120 days from the date that the natural disaster occurred unless applicants can provide sufficient reasons why they were unable to complete and submit their application prior to this deadline. Requests for exceptions will be ruled on by the DRF directors on a case-by-case basis. 5. Items needed for a complete file. Homeowners. 1. Complete grant application. 2. Proof of home ownership or vehicle ownership, if damaged. 3. Clear-cut photos of damaged property. Home, show house address number, vehicle, if damaged, personal. 4. List of items damaged and estimate cost. 5. Hotel receipts, if applicable repair estimates, if available, insurance quotes, if available, etc. 6. President or designee verification. Renters. 1. Complete grant application. 2. Clear-cut photos of damaged property, vehicle, if damaged, personal. 3. List of items damaged and estimate cost. 4. Renter insurance quotes, if available. 5. Hotel receipts, if applicable. 6. Copy of deposit on new place, if applicable. 7. President or designee verification. Other matters that need to be considered. If members rent a residence, please provide statements, if available, from a landlord establishing property and habitability, a copy of the new residence application, or a copy of the deposit receipt. If the member incurs expenses due to the displacement, he or she should provide hotel receipts or other documents to show these costs. Members must document with photos the damage sustained by their primary residence, vehicle, or personal property.
If the member receives estimates or begins to repair their property or vehicle, they should provide those receipts. Finally, the branch president or designee will need to verify the member's address and claim damages. This is with the form provided by the president and or a prepared statement documenting the member's damage from the disaster. Remember, the application for DRF assistance is not an application for Federal Emergency Management Agency aid or any other federal disaster assistance. It is also not automatic. You must provide the proper documentation. Again, please make sure that the grant application and all pictures of the damage are clear, complete, and legible. You can find the DRF grant application form at nalc.org disaster. Grant applications can be sent to the following address. NALC Disaster Relief Foundation. Attention, Christina Vela Davidson. 1101 North Chase Parkway, Southeast, Suite 3, Marietta, Georgia, 30067 or email to disasterreleffoundation at nalc.org. 2023 Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive Additions and Corrections. Branch 79, Seattle, Washington, 460,605 pounds. Eastman, Georgia, Branch 2389, 62 pounds. Knoxville, Tennessee, Branch 419, 5,000 pounds. Yuma, Arizona, Branch 1642, 17,065 pounds. Hemet, California, Branch 2901, 12,360 pounds. Abilene, Texas, Branch 950, 34,856 pounds. For a new total of 43,746,343 pounds.